by saying, get out of the boat. In other words, we had to take a step ourselves and then see the miracle of God. Um, but if we just stayed in the boat, we would never see that miracle. And then my last message was talking about, you know, loving one another because we actually do, we actually do that. We come into the church, we greet each other, you know, we're nice, we, we have a cup of tea together, but actually are we loving each other to the point of encouraging one another? You know, actually bringing courage to each other. And that's a two-way street because, one, we need to know what somebody else is going through. And unless they, don't, unless they tell us, we don't know. So in a way, we need to be interested in people to find out what their vision is or what their pain is so that we can give them courage. And I had the pictures of the ladder, if you remember, people up a ladder, and the person at the bottom was holding the ladder. And, of course, the person at the bottom wants the person at the top to succeed. The whole purpose of holding the ladder at the bottom is so that the person, whatever they're doing up the top, will succeed. So as a church, this is what God is saying to us. He's saying, you know, you need to get moving. You need to be doing this together. You're not a, I'm not wanting you to do it on your own. I'm wanting you to get together as a body. But the message this morning is just going up another, turning the temperature up a little bit more, and say, we need to make it count. And I just want to reflect on uh, the Queen's honours that, I don't know if anybody saw that in the news just recently, um, but one of our greatest adventurers and mountaineer, Sir Graham Dingle, was honoured with a knight companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit. And he was, that was for over 40 years of service in the community. But Graham wasn't always like that. He tells the story that at the age of 25, on the top of the Southern Alps, a climbing companion challenged him, saying, Actually, Graham, your cup is quite empty. You are quite selfish, quite boring, and you won't really achieve anything until you start giving to others. Now, somebody had the courage, one of his companions had the courage to tell him that at the age of 25. And he puts that person's message to him down to changing his life. And Sir Graham went on to birth the Graham Dingle Foundation with the aim of inspiring all school-aged children to reach their full potential through programs that help build self-esteem, promote good values, and teach valuable life and education and health schools. And now... They are reaching out to 20,000 children a year that go through the programs that they're running there. So from the age of 25 of being selfish and boring, that comment changed his life and, of course, changed many other people's lives. He was successful, but he had no significance. He was successful, but he had no significance. I look back on my life, and I'm sure you can too, to a comment somebody made to you. Hopefully, they did it in love. But I remember that in one job that I was in, I just didn't seem to be getting on. And I went to my manager to say, you know, why, why is this? And they pointed out a flaw in my character. 
And it was hard because I realized when I went out of that room, I couldn't just change overnight. It was a process that had to be developed. But it was through that comment that actually took me on to getting promotion later on. But I actually asked for it because nobody was willing to tell me. And I think it's important that people show us our blind spots at times. Sometimes the truth hurts, especially our feelings. But most of us looking back now appreciate someone giving us some strong advice, whether it was a coach. You know, I, th I think sometimes people are cross when, say, maybe a pastor or somebody like that tells them something and they'll leave the church. But if they go to, if they're playing sport and the coach tells them something hard, look, you were just useless last week. You guys couldn't, whatever. You know what I mean? They sometimes just get into this and everybody's going, yes, coach, yes, coach, we've got to do better next week. And out there they go the next week and they do do better. But if the pastor starts to, saying that to people, they say, oh, I'm going to leave the church. I'm going to go to a church where they're not so tough. I'm, I'm to, you know, it's not always like that, but sometimes we need these people to speak into our lives, and I'm not just setting myself up because I'm going to speak some tough stuff to you, and I don't want you to leave, but I'm just showing the energy, and sometimes when we go to the dentist, you know, I, I don't like going to the dentist because the guy has this ability to drill right through my teeth into my wallet. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the car, you know, you just know that you just got to get the brake pads changed. But then he feels in there and he says, oh, it's got grooves in there. It's going to be reground, you know. Instead of just brake pads, you've, you're in for an expensive job. All right? So people in life tell us hard things that we don't want to hear. And we should want to hear them. In Proverbs, it says, rebuke the wise and they will love you. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. So you see, there's a thing here that we're going to want to encourage each other in love, right? Encourage each other in love. But we need, to need, we need that encouragement as well because there's a purpose for this. So let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to commit this message to you. Lord, you placed it on my heart, and Lord, I want to bring it the best I can but Lord, what's of you? I just want to resonate in all of our hearts, mine as well, and what's of me just to fall to the floor. So Lord, we just commit this time to you. Bless us, we pray, as we listen to your word in your precious name. Amen. You know, at the age of 20, George Ritchie joined the army, but got very sick and actually died in the army hospital. After being dead for nine minutes, the doctors tried a little-known procedure of injecting adrenaline into his heart on the suggestion of an intern. They'd left him for dead. He had a sheet over his head. But the intern who came into his room to, to prepare him for the morgue actually thought he saw him move. So it caused him to rush back to the senior doctor. And being in the army, of course, they all have rank. So the doctor has got a high rank. He was only of a low rank, but he suggested that they do that to this patient. And fortunately for George, it brought him back to life, even though he was still very sick. But during those nine minutes, George had what is commonly called an out-of-body experience. 
And in his book, Return from Tomorrow, he recounts this time in some detail, including a very powerful meeting with Jesus. And I want to read some of this to you. Now, has anybody had an out-of-body experience where they've met the Lord? Okay. So that's why I think it's important that I read this to you. I wasn't sure when the light in the room began to change. Suddenly I was aware that it was brighter, a lot brighter than it had been. I stared in astonishment as the brightness increased, coming from nowhere. Now remember, he's de- he's he's realizes that he's dead. His spirit has seen the sheet over his head. All right? So he's in the spirit. It seemed to to shine everywhere at once. All the light bulbs in the ward couldn't give off that much light. All the bulbs in the world couldn't. It was impossibly bright. A man had entered the room, or rather, a man made out of light. His name was Jesus. But this was not Jesus of my Sunday school books. That Jesus was gentle, kind, understanding, and probably a little bit of a weakling. This person was power itself, older than time and yet more modern than anyone I had ever met. Above all, with the same mysterious inner certainty, I knew that this man loved me. This love knew every unlovable thing about me. The quarrels with my stepmother, my explosive temper, the sex thoughts I could never control, every mean, selfish thought and action since the day I was born. This was reliving He could see this with the Lord standing beside him. Everything that had ever happened to me was simply there in full view. I saw myself lifted up by caesarean section out of my mother's womb who was dying at the time. He never knew his mother. He never knew that in the past. I saw myself a few months older sitting on the lap of a kind-faced woman with silver-rimmed glasses and a crooked nose. Along with cheerful scenes were miserable ones. I watched myself getting beaten up by that boy, watched my humiliation as my sister hurried out from the house to fight my battles for me. I saw myself crying as Dad said goodbye for a week, two weeks, a month, his job forever taking him away. There were other scenes, hundreds, thousands, all illuminated by the searing light in an existence where time seemed to have ceased. It would have taken weeks of ordinary time even to glance at so many events, and yet I had no sense of minutes passing. Every detail of 20 years of living was there to be looked at. The good, the bad, the high points, the run of the mill, and with this all-inclusive view came a question. What did you do with your life? It seemed to be a question about values, not facts. What did you accomplish with the precious time you were allotted? He was 20. He died at the age of 20, and Jesus was asking him what he had done in that time. Desperately, I looked around me for something that would seem worthwhile in the light of this blazing reality. Only an endless, short-sighted, clamorous concern for myself Hadn't I ever gone beyond my own immediate interest, done anything other people would recognize as valuable? I 
started to point out my pre-med courses, how I was going to be a doctor and help people. But visible alongside the classroom scenes was the Cadillac I wished for and the private airplane. Thoughts as observable as actions in all pervading light. Waiting for my answer to the question still hung in the dazzling air. What have you done with your life to show me? Already I understood that in my first frantic efforts to come up with an impressive answer, I had missed the point altogether. He wasn't asking about accomplishments and awards. The question, like everything else proceeding from him, had to do with love. How much have you loved with your life? Have you loved others as I am, going, as I am loving you? Totally, unconditionally. Hearing the question like that, I saw how foolish it was even to try to find an answer in the scenes around us. Why? I hadn't known love like this was possible. Somebody should have told me, I thought indignantly. But the answering thought held no rebuke, only that hint of heavenly laughter behind the words. I did tell you. But how? Still wanting to justify myself. How could he have told me and I not heard? Jesus said, I told you by the life I lived. <laughs> it gets me every time. I told you by the death I died. <laughs> I told you by the life I lived. I told you by the death I died, is what Christ said to him. You know, that's only in part the story of that amazing time that he had with the Lord. But fortunately for him, about the age of nine or ten, he gave his heart to the Lord. So the Lord restored him and allowed him to come back. And he actually went on to medical school and he became a doctor. And of course, he's written his book, as it was up there before, Return from Tomorrow. Different versions. There's another one here. I've lent out a couple of others because it's a story that we need to hear. We need to hear that there's going to be a meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I want to talk to you today. He had 20 years lived on the earth, and he had nothing, nothing to offer the Lord at all. And during that encounter with Jesus, uh, George makes this comment, a fine time to discover what life is all about, like coming to a final exam and discovering you are going to be tested on a subject you have never studied. We must realize that whether we're Christians or non-Christians, there will be a final exam where every human will have to give an account of their lives. The Bible is quite clear in this. It says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. We must realize, saved or not, as it says in Hebrews, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare 
before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do you realize that? Are you preparing for that? Am I preparing for that? Ask the person beside you, are you preparing for your exam? Serious about it. Are you preparing for your exam? I shortened the version down of, you know, I went through about eight pages there when I read to you that book. I just took bits out of it. But every part of his life was shown to him by a loving God. And he realized that Jesus wasn't judging him or judging his story. He was. By standing next to Christ, he could see his life for what it was. And he was judging it. And he could see he had nothing. He just stood beside a loving God. And I think it's good that while we're alive, we look at our story. And while we're alive, we prepare for our exam. Let's just uh, run a little video, please. When we're laying on our deathbed, you're not going to worry about how much money you had, how much power you had, how much prestige. You're going to see that that was all game, that that was all an illusion. The only thing that's going to matter is the impact you had on other people's lives. We are all on a separate journey. But the beautiful thing about our life here on this earth is at my funeral, they ain't going to talk about my success. They're going to talk about who Nick was and how Nick lived and how Nick loved and encouraged. Success is incredibly important, but even more important than success, it's having an impact. It's knowing you haven't walked the planet in vain. It's knowing that because you've been here, you've blessed lives, you've developed people, and you have made the world a better place. The effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Everything you gain in life will rot and fall apart and all that will be left of you is what was in your heart. Life is a mirror. And life gives us not what we want. Life gives us who we are. When you were born, you cried while the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries while you rejoice. These things are emotional for me because I feel for people. 
being in the fatal squad for quite a number of years, I just went to crashes. People's lives had ended. It was over. It was finished. As a pastor now for over 13 years, I do many funerals. People's lives have finished. And there's a verse in the Bible that says, where the tree falls, that's where it lies. It's just a very simple thing. When you, when you die, that's, that's it. Your race is finished. What you've done counts. What you haven't done doesn't count. So it's emotional for me because I want you to succeed. I want each one of you to succeed. I want to succeed. As the video said, the only thing that is going to matter is the impact you had on other people's lives, knowing that you have blessed lives, that you have developed people, and that you have made the world a better place. If we took the exam today, how would we do? There would, some, there would be some that would get top marks. And I'm not really speaking to you today apart from to encourage one another. But there's others that would fail the exam. And I challenge myself, how would I do? Make it count is the title of my message because that's what the Holy Spirit impressed on me to bring. Make what you do count in God's eyes. The Apostle Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who completes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like somebody running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Even the Apostle Paul knew he could miss the mark, and he very nearly did. Do you realize that? Thankfully, like Dr. Ritchie, Jesus also met Saul, who became Paul, dramatically on the road to Damascus. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience that Dr. Ritchie had. And we too need to find our calling and our purpose, but necessarily in, not necessarily in such a dramatic way. When we find our purpose, we accomplish what we need to accomplish. There's an equest that we need to ask God, what is my purpose? Why was I born? There's a thing in the video that says we don't always get to choose what happens to us. There was a picture there of Nick. If you remember Nick, he has got no arms and no legs. I reckon that guy would have had more hugs than just about anybody else in the world. He's a you know, he wouldn't have chosen to live a life without legs and arms if he was given the choice, but that was his lot. But he's made what a fantastic life he's made as an inspirational speaker, and especially to young people. He's found his purpose. 
In Jeremiah it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. But listen, if you don't ask God what that plan is, you, we'll always quote that scripture for you. We'll always be saying to you, Oh, God's got a plan for you. God's got a plan for you. God's got a plan for you. But we've got to ask God, What is that plan? In Ephesians, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he's got a role for you. He's prepared it for you. You are suited for it. You will fit it. He's just waiting for you to ask him and to get started on it. There is a cost, and that's what we're afraid of. We're afraid it will cost us something. We're afraid that we'll have to give up something. In Matthew it says, Forever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life, for me, will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. In the Gospel of Luke, we read this very familiar story from a rich young man, possibly similar to George Ritchie, asking Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. So here is a story where a man is saying, okay, what must I do? Lord, what can I do? And that's the question we need to ask. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. The man says, all these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. What did he lack? Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. We disqualify ourselves from that story. We say that that story does not apply to us for several reasons. One, we're not rich. Two, we're not ruling. We're not a rich young ruler, so it doesn't apply to us. We could also disqualify ourselves by saying, look, if God asked me to sell everything, give to the poor, I don't know if I could do that. But that story actually applies to all of us because it's not about the man being rich. It's about God understanding what the man needs in heaven. And it's about God speaking to him about his purpose and his plan. The successful young man, he appears successful, he was rich, in human terms, appeared to have it all. Yet Jesus could see that he lacked treasure in heaven. In a way, Jesus wasn't asking him necessarily to sell everything. He was asking him, do you trust me? Do you love me? What are the two greatest commandments? To love God with everything. What's the other one? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he was asking him to do. Just two simple commandments. If you love me, you'll trust me. If you love me, you'll give it all away, and you'll trust me, I will look after you. But you need to help others. So there were the two commandments in that one story. The act of trusting Jesus and loving the poor 
was too big a bridge to cross for that man. And that's often a too big a bridge for us. What are we prepared to give up? Do we trust God? Are we interested in the poor? Are we interested in helping others? No. All right, end of story. But we don't want to be like that, do we? Pardon? Is loving God and loving others too much for us? Yes? No? That's right. It's difficult. Jesus says in Matthew, Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what can we do to make our lives count? That's the thing. What can we do to make our lives count? Shortly before his arrest, Jesus tells three very important parables. The parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and goats. He really wanted the point, to hammer home the point, before he was arrested. And time doesn't allow me to go through all of those parables, but they have the same theme. The bridegroom, the master or king, return at an unspecified time. You know, just recently, if you notice in the news, two very tragic incidents where a, a father of a lovely family was run over uh, recently in Auckland, and also a, a young man uh, who was going to Bible college who fell out of a boat. He said he feared, you know, he didn't, knew he couldn't swim, and yet he managed to fall off that boat in the harbour, and they're still looking for his body. Two young men who never planned on meeting their maker last week. But it happens, and we don't know when it's going to happen. Both are tragic stories. So we don't know when the bridegroom is coming back. We don't know when the master's coming back. We don't know when we're going to meet Jesus. And he warns us about those. Those who are ready getting about the master's or king's business, pass the exam with flying colors. So let's look at, you know, the parable of the sheep and goats. And there's a bit of reading here, but it's important. You can't just tell half the story. Let's have a look at Matthew 26. Once upon a time, I know we used to all turn to our Bibles, but sometimes this is the only Bible people get. So let's go through this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and, and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, 
Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When we do things for other people, we're doing it for Christ. When we're helping people, it's a simple process. Loving, feeding, watering, visiting, you know, encouraging other people out of love. Paul says to the Galatians, I know there's been a lot of Bible here, but this is, what, this is how God talks to us, through his word. And I want his word to talk to you and to talk to me. Not just my word. I want the word of God to say this is very simple and it's, it, we need to take notice. Paul says in Galatians, the person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. And all he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit, all right, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, Harvest a crop of real life, eternal life. We're not meant to do it alone. The Holy Spirit wants to help us with the function God has given us. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. So if the big bad world is scary for you, right in this room there are people that you could help and show the love of Christ to. And then from there we develop out into the big bad world. And if you partner with people in here, it's a lot easier to get out there. But if we're not looking to do that, we won't do it. Too hard? Not at all. Get along some like-minded people. There are some amazing people in this congregation doing some amazing things of all ages. You know, I was walking down the street, um, limping down the street the other day, <laughs> trying to walk as if I wasn't limping. But, and there I saw one of our church people sitting on the step talking to an alcoholic. And I was just, I was just it warned me. I won't embarrass them by saying who it was, but the Lord knows. That person was reaching out to somebody in the lower end, you might say, of the community. And it just gladdened my heart. And I know it gladdened the Lord's heart. You know, there are people serving and doing things out of love for one another. And God is recording that, recording it and recording it. It gladdens his heart as well. A cup of cold water. Can you do that? And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water, 
now you'll realize what the picture was that's been going through the slides up there. Anyone who gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose the reward. It takes effort. It doesn't come easily, I know that. But every little step in the right direction brings us closer to the goal. If we don't take the first step, we only talk about it. If we don't take the first step, we only feel bad about it. But if we take the first step, we're on our way to success and significance. As Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I've got to pause there and say the very reason Christ rescued you, the very reason and the purpose was that you could be him in the community. That's the purpose. You just imagine that if the only, the, the only reason you got saved was to be saved. Okay? You're saved. Now get to heaven. It's all over. But he leaves us here. What, to, to go through agony, to go through trial, to punish us? No, it's to reach a community. That's the reason we get saved, is to reach a community. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is head, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward, in Christ Jesus. You know, we only have one life. True? One life. We've got to make it count. We've got to make it count. When it comes to the final exam, I'm sure we all want to hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. Amen?